This episode of the MJ Cast is dedicated to Lisa Marie Presley, who tragically passed away on the 12th of January, 2023. Lisa Marie married Michael Jackson in 1994. Whilst the marriage was short-lived, Lisa told Oprah it was a sincere relationship and she was devastated by his death. Lisa Marie was reportedly the last mourner to leave Michael's casket at his funeral before he was interred. She also remained a friend and supporter of several Jackson family members, and we know how affected they have been by her passing. Lisa Marie was also a musician and wonderfully strong woman in her own right. Her legacy will live on. Rest in peace, Lisa Marie. Gone too soon. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and we are back with our second episode of Season 9. And today it's just me and two Charlies, Charlie Carter and Charlie Thompson, here to chat about all the MJ news. Super excited to get into it. So uh, let's start with you, Charlie Thompson. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. You okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing really well, thanks. It's pretty hot today, i got to be honest. We've had a few pretty sweltering days here in Brisbane. It's not even summer anymore, but it's just not nice. The humidity's out of control. Oh, it's been raining here all day and all yesterday and all the day before. So uh, we're at extreme opposite ends of the spectrum there. I'm very jealous. We had a cross-country event at uh, school yesterday where all the students had to run and oh my goodness it was too hot for that way too hot anyway charlie carter how are you doing not too bad also not necessarily enjoying the heat 38 degrees the other day oh. sweating like a pregnant nun didn't need that <laughs> <laughs> no fun no fun at all well you know what we've got a bit of a problem this episode because i'm gonna have to distinguish between the two of you so have, <laughs> how am i gonna do that so we'll go charlie is charlie thompson and carter is charlie carter does that work for you guys that'll work i thought you were suggesting that we had the same voice for a moment then <laughs> i was gonna say that's what are you smoking Okay. No, Charles, Carter's <laughs> accent, he's got some Australian mixed in there. Yeah, well, being from Devon, it's a little bit like a cross between a farmer and a pirate, so you kind of have to <laughs> drop some of that out. Should I just do the whole episode with an Australian accent to fuck Jamin up? Can you give me your best Aussie accent right now? Let's go. Oh, this which one? There's so many Australian accents. Really? Bogan. What's the, yeah, what's, what's Bogan? What is that, like Kath and Kim? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, <laughs> how would you explain it? Without being offensive, it's uh, very well. We use the word "ocker" actually in Australian. Mm. So, Kath and Kim. Yeah, I guess uh, you could say that. To me, there's not that many accents in Australia, but you go around the UK, which is such a small country, and there are so many accents. You know, you'd be in central London, and everyone's a Cockney geezer. Or you can be up in Manchester, and everyone's a Liam Gallagher wannabe. Or you could be <laughs> in South Wales, down in the valleys. <laughs> there are there's loads of Australian accents. There's there's, I like the Kylie Minogue type ones where they say 
I instead of O. They're like, I nigh. <laughs> why it's like, why are you doing what that? I nigh. That's they do, I'm telling you, they do. That's that's what some Australians do. Yeah. There is I a funny nigh. sound in some of the vowels, isn't there? Yeah. You do there are definitely different Australian accents. They're a little bit more subtle in their differences, but I can definitely tell the difference between somebody from, you know, south, the south, like Melbourne or something like that, compared to Queensland. To me, Australian vernacular is fascinating because sometimes they can say things that make absolutely no sense, but you know exactly what they mean. Like, for example, the best phrase I've ever heard since moving to Australia is ugly as a hatful of arseholes, which makes <laughs> no sense, but you know exactly what it means. <laughs> Another weird thing about Australia, if uh, Charlie, if you ever come here, is people ask each other questions but what they really mean are statements. They don't actually expect answers to them. So yeah. if you if you go to like the shops or whatever, you, you would say to somebody, oh, yeah, how you going? You know, you have no expectation that there's an answer coming back. It pretty much just means hello. Oh, well, right, well I'll remember that if I ever come to Australia. Yeah. Uh, one day I will. I hope so. They ask questions that don't need answering, like how heavy is this rain? And you're like, oh, yeah. I don't know, quite heavy? <laughs> Where is Q from? Because he used to say all his A's as I's. I remember when, whenever we would do an episode, it would be like 5 a.m. where he was recording and he'd say, I'm here with my kits. With my kits <laughs> instead of my kits. Yeah, Q, Q has a very um, particular Australian accent. He, he's, his words are very carefully pronounced. His vowels are very, very uh, clearly pronounced, I would say. And he... Um, he was born in Queensland, so he's from the same state I am originally, but then moved to to Perth. So he lives way on the on the west coast of Australia. In Western Australia is the state, but um, yeah. All right, let's uh, let's get down to business, gentlemen. So we've got some MJ news to talk about. You know, we haven't covered news for quite a while because our previous episode, obviously, was one where we caught up with friend of the show Brad Sunberg about everything that unfolded in his uh, recent seminars and and the future of what he's doing within the studio with MJ. But it's time that we we dig into some news because it's been a few months since we've done that, and uh, we might kick things off with news around MJ the musical, which I still have not seen, and, and Carter, you've not seen, but Charlie, you have. It's coming to London. The news is that it is coming to London March 2024. So we're roughly a year away of the show traveling around internationally, leaving New York. The first performance is going to be at the Prince Edward Theatre on March 6th, 2024, with a press night on March 27th, 2024. Tickets are going to go on sale for the general public on May 24th, 2023. Fans will be able to access early ticket sales before that date as well. No Miles Frost. Auditions are currently underway for a new Michael Jackson I think this is great news. Uh, it's been received incredibly well by lots of people who've seen it. Reviews are raving about how great it is. So I, I don't see how anyone could take this as bad news. I think it's going to do well internationally. Well, I mean, I'm a big London theatre goer and uh, I know the Prince Edward Theatre. It's a big theatre. It's one of the biggest theatres in the West End. So they're obviously expecting it to do good business. I am a little sad that Miles Frost, it appears, is um, leaving the show. I was hoping he would come over to open the show in London because he was so good. 
it is difficult to imagine them finding somebody who would do a better job than he did, to be honest. Having Because I saw the show in New York, and he was brilliant. So a bit trepidatious about the idea of a, a new MJ being cast, but I'm sure I will go to see it when it opens in London. I just hope it's as good as it was in New York. What was it about Miles that, that made him so great, in your opinion? Was it, I think you mentioned in a previous episode, it was his, the dancing. Yeah, so I saw the show twice in New York, once with Miles and once with the understudy, whose name is escaping me at this moment. I felt that the understudy did a better job of embodying Michael. He played the part of Michael slightly better, I thought, than uh, Miles Frost. However, when it came to the vocal abilities and the dancing, Miles Frost was, you know, streets ahead, in my opinion. That's what you need for a show like this. The main thing is that you need the lead to be able to sing well and to dance well. And Miles wasn't just dancing well, he was dancing spectacularly. I, I said when I was on the show previously, there was a number towards the end of the show the idea of the routine was that he was like a marionette puppet who was being puppeteered by a sort of demon character. I just could not work out how he was doing what he was doing. He was falling to the floor and then rising back up again as if he was on strings, but he wasn't. He was just extraordinary. His physicality, I've never seen anybody move in that way as he was doing. And the difference was marked between when you saw Miles in the lead role and when you saw the understudy, Miles just was streets ahead as a performer. And it's just difficult to imagine them finding somebody out there who's going to be better or even as good. I mean, hopefully they do, but they didn't manage it in New York. You know, the understudy was not another Miles. You could tell the difference, you know, between the two and, um, so that's a concern. Carter, will you be coming to see it? Well, the chances of me being able to see it sooner are increased with it going to London. Obviously, I've got links to the UK more than I do to the USA. So at the moment, nothing is booked or planned in terms of a trip to the UK, but I would like to get over there again. And if I do, uh, there's a good chance that we'll be staying in central London sometime and you and I will have to meet up again and maybe we can go and watch it together. All right, count me in. Unless I've already been and it was shit. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll wait for your review of the London shows in uh, what will that be? Season ten. What what is this now? Season nine. Is this really season nine? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it'll be season ten then. Yeah. Team trip to London to mark the tenth season of the MJ cast. Let's do it. Uh, what does it mean? Because you go to theatre stuff all the time. What's what's a press night? Okay, so typically when a show opens, they have a soft opening, which is known as previews. So when a show is in previews, it basically means the show has opened, but it has not officially opened. It's this slight ridiculousness, really. So it's sort of like a, a hinterland between rehearsal and opening night where you've got an audience coming in and you're effectively testing the show in front of an audience to see what works and what doesn't work. So typically a show will have one to two weeks of previews before its official opening night, which is also sometimes known as press night. And so 
it's a chance to iron out any problems with the show that are not quite working. And typically the previews are slightly cheaper than the rest of the run. So you might get your tickets, you know, 15, 20 pounds cheaper if you go to a preview than if you go to the full run. So what that means essentially is everything before that press night on the 27th will be a quasi rehearsal period. And then press night is, as it says on the tin, that is the night that all the theatre critics get invited to come and watch the show, effectively opening night. And then from then on, you're into your official run. Do reviews still come out, though, of the preview period? Well, they can do. So if, like a lot of showbiz journalism, it's kind of run by PR. So effectively, if you are a reviewer and you go to a show in the preview and you review it in the preview, then you will make an enemy of that theatre company and of the person, the, the entity that's running the press for that show which means the next time there's a show that you want to review, you're not going to be getting tickets to the press night. You're not going to be getting any kind of favours. you know. So most mainstream theatre critics will not go and review a show before the opening night. I see. But of course, this is a Michael Jackson event. It may well be that tabloids want to send somebody in on the first night of previews to write some sort of hit piece about what a whitewash it is or whatever. We'll have to wait and see. I don't put anything past anyone. I mean, as soon as it was announced that the show was coming to London, there was a very stupid article written in The Guardian, some think piece, hot take by some dipstick, who um, <laughs> it basically said, uh, what's the point of a Michael Jackson musical coming to the West End? if it's just going to gloss over all of his demons, it's like, okay, so you actually don't know anything about the show then. You've not seen it. You don't know what it's about. Because, of course, the whole show, literally the whole show, <laughs> is about Michael Jackson wrestling with his demons. It's about Michael Jackson wrestling with drug abuse, with childhood trauma, with excessive spending. It's a, a whole litany of things with press intrusion, etc., etc. The whole show is about Michael Jackson struggling with his demons. And this absolute tit writes an article <laughs> saying, you know, well, it's just a whitewash, this silly whitewash. You know what I mean? It's just so indicative of how shit a lot of journalism is. That was so stupid, that article. I don't know who wrote that. I don't know who that was. But they may have meant the allegations as well. Like, obviously, that's not mentioned in the musical because the musical is set before that even happened during the dangerous rehearsal period. But I'm assuming that that person probably meant Michael's relationship with certain families. Well, that's not what they said, though. I mean, if they were alluding to that, then they were alluding to it in an obtuse way, mm. which left it open to misinterpretation. I mean, the show even does address that. I mean, there's one scene where the road manager is ranting and raving about the expense of this mystery family that Michael has decided that he needs to cart around on the tour with him. And then there's a press conference where the press keep asking him to comment on the latest allegations. And it just doesn't specify what those allegations are. Even that issue is slightly addressed in the show anyway. Onto a bit of sadder news, friend of the show Harrison Funk has sadly suffered a stroke. Uh, he's apparently um, 
currently recovering and is in good spirits, according to his social media. This is very unexpected. I mean, I, I mean, I know he's had health issues over the years. This one came out of the blue for me, and it was really, really sad when I saw that. Charlie, I know you have a friendship with Harrison Funk. Do you know how he's doing at all, or have you spoken to him since this? I think it may be a stretch to call it a friendship. I mean, I didn't know until you told me that Harrison had had a stroke. Oh, and I haven't spoken to him for a couple of years, but right. I'm on speaking terms with Harrison. You know, we have each other's phone numbers, and um, I've interviewed him twice for the MJ cast, and I've been in touch with him away from the MJ cast before. I know that Harrison was struggling with long COVID. He got COVID very badly, I guess maybe two years ago or something, and... Um, was really, really struggling with long COVID. So I wouldn't be surprised if this turns out to be connected to that. You know, I just wish him well and hope that he uh, makes as speedy a recovery as is possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we spoke with him for our Harrison Funk special a few years ago, he was talking about doing more galleries where, you know, he would show his work his photography of Michael over the years and different things like that. And, you know, then he had all the health issues come along. So I really hope he can he can get back up on the horse and and achieve some of that stuff one day because he just took some incredible and iconic photos of the King of Pop and they deserve to be seen and appreciated. Yeah, it was very sad to hear that Harrison had some health issues. We obviously all appreciate his photography and his art with regards to Michael Jackson. And all I can really say is that we hope he makes a full recovery and gets well soon. Janet Jackson is working on a new documentary called Family Time. This comes after 2022's Janet docuseries that came out on the Lifetime and A&E network. Janet is uh, following it with Janet Jackson Family Time. And it's got an interesting kind of premise. It's going to follow her new 2023 tour together again, as well as her collaboration with her brother, Randy, to reunite the family band after 40 years since their last performance together. The Jacksons are going to be performing together again this year, according to reports, including all of its members. So this news came before Marlon's alleged health issues that have been cropping up lately. So we'll see if it remains to be true throughout the year. But it seems as though the family is planning to get back together for some kind of performance this year. And we documented in Janet's documentary. It's sort of unclear whether the performance will be a part of her tour or like a separate event that she'll appear at. We don't really know that. But I saw that MJ Vibe predicted even though it's only speculation, that they think that when Janet performs at Madison Square Garden in New York as a part of this tour, that that could be the location, that there's some kind of reunion. Because, of course, the last time that the brothers were all together with Michael was the 30th anniversary shows, uh, September 7th and 10th, 2001. So it might be fitting for the family to all get back together there again and perform uh, with Janet on stage. Um, not really sure, but it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, I don't recall a time uh, in, in recent memory that the brothers have performed with Janet following maybe maybe as far back as the 70s, but um, certainly not since then. So I, I'm really curious to see how it all would go down. I'm a bit skeptical about this documentary because it almost sounds from the premise a bit like a reality show 
it sounds kind of in keeping with the Jacksons. Um, was it called Dynasty? The the show that yeah. they made it around twenty ten or something. Yeah. yeah, and I'm always a bit skeptical of those shows because they seem a little bit scripted. So yeah, I mean, I'm not really interested in the documentary. I'll probably watch it when it comes out, but I, it would be dishonest of me to say that I'm excited to see it. However, I would be excited to see all the brothers reunited on stage. It would be exciting just to see Jermaine rejoin the brothers on stage, actually, because he's been away for a couple of years now. The show misses him, I think. But I think first and foremost, I hope that Marlon is okay and is um, recovering. And I think that's the most important thing. So everything that we're talking about right now could be null and void anyway as a result of uh, Marlon's health problem. Get well, Marlon, and um, we'll worry about the rest of it after that. Yeah, Janet's documentary that she put out last year, I quite enjoyed, although I have only watched it that one time. I don't really know what to expect with the the new documentary. I will watch it. I'll wait to see exactly what's included in it. I mean, we're all going to watch anything to do with the Jackson family just out of curiosity. And I'm curious to see exactly what it's going to be. If it is scripted like the Family Dynasty show was, then perhaps it's not going to be quite as enjoyable. But it is an up-to-date film, if you like, about what the Jackson family are up to. So I'm looking forward to it from that point of view. I also think the angle of Randy possibly rejoining the brothers could be really interesting because I I, I don't know if it's true, but since Michael passed away and the brothers started touring again, I don't think Randy has been on any show with them. No. So it would be interesting if they did do another performance for Randy to join them, as well as Janet, obviously, but... Um, to see Jermaine and the brothers back together with Randy on stage would be something just to behold, I think, because that hasn't happened since 2001. All right, let's move along to talk about some more music news. Interesting interview came out recently with music producer Just Blaze, who has revealed there's an unreleased Michael Jackson and Jay-Z collaboration. When you go back to 2001, Michael and Jay-Z were doing a couple of things together. Michael obviously appeared at uh, the Hot 97's Summer Jam concert in 2001, surprise appearance for the crowd. Jay-Z also did a remix for You Rock My World. Not my favorite remix ever, but anyway, it exists. In a new interview with Bloomberg's Idea Generation, longtime Rockefeller producer Just Blaze added more tales to their relationship. And apparently, Jay-Z's 2001 song, Girls, 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 from his album, The Blueprint, there's a version of it out there with Michael singing on it that we've never heard. And I'll quote what Just Blaze says in the interview. He says, so Michael Jackson is on the Girls, Girls, Girls remix, the A version. And I never knew that. I don't know if I didn't go to the studio that day. I thought it was an urban legend or something that Jay said, like in jest one day, or just was some kind of myth. So one day I was looking for something on the server, and I find this this straight folder that says MJ vocals. And I'm like, MJ? 
doesn't that mean Michael Jackson or whatever? And I'm thinking it's probably stuff from Remember Jay had or something to do with You Rock My World. So I'm thinking it's like takes from that session. And I'm like, I don't think they recorded this at baseline, but let me take a listen and see what it is. And I realize I'm listening to it. It's him singing on Girls, Girls, Girls. And I'm like, it's true. The last 20 years, I just found it during quarantine. So all these years, I've never known it was a real thing. And it turns out the files had been sitting downstairs this entire time. Now, to my knowledge, this song has not been heard by the community, but it is kind of cool to know that there is another recording out there of Michael uh, that we might get to hear one day. Mm, I mean, I just couldn't care less, to be honest. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, if I was, to, if I were to try to locate my interest in this subject, <laughs> we would be here a million years from now. I just could not give less of a shit. <laughs> if somebody oh. said, Charlie, there's a CD three feet away from you with that song on it, you just have to get up and put it in the CD player. Okay, no. You're not even <laughs> curious. I don't give a fuck. I just could not care less. <laughs> Why I just, not? I just don't care. I just that you know what? For years we were like, oh, what's in the vault? What's in the vault? I wish yeah. somebody would open the vault. I wish we could hear everything that's in the vault. And invariably, every single thing that comes out of the vault is shit. Every time. So I just don't care anymore. I don't give a monkeys. There's there's nothing in the vault worth listening to. It's all, all the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, but this isn't a Michael Jackson just... vault song. This is a Jay-Z song. So, I, I mean, well, I understand. It's worse, you know, though. I understand like, if you're not a Jay-Z so fan. It's, it's, I like Jay-Z. I'd like to hear a version of it with Michael contributing, is, is what I'm saying. I'm envisaging we be balling you, but worse. <laughs> That's what I'm envisaging. Is it possible to get worse? <laughs> oh, boy. Look, I, my knowledge of Jay-Z is limited other than that he's married to Beyonce and that uh, he and I share the same surname. But uh, with regards to these vocals, obviously it's great to go through some old songs and find that Michael Jackson has recorded vocals for it. So I'm curious to hear them from that point of view, but I don't know the song. In many ways, I... I sort of agree with Charlie Thompson that lots of things that have come out of the vault have been less than whelming. And <laughs> I will sort of I, – I, I think I'll reserve judgment until I've heard it, but it, it may well be one of those things that I listen to once and go, all right, well, I've heard it now. Or it might yeah. be something that I go, actually, I really, really like that. And, you know, things like that happen where you hear one thing and you go, okay, well, maybe I'll explore this artist a little bit more. It's exactly what we were talking about with Taj on the Christmas episode where trying to get the younger audience in to see the 4K videos of Beat It and Thriller might then lead to a new fan saying, well, I'll go and see some of the rest of Michael's catalogue, like Smooth Criminal or Black and White, or, you know, something like that. It, it may well be the catalyst for me to find out a bit more about jay-z and maybe get more into his catalog you never know until it comes out i'll reserve judgment but no I'm, i can't say that i'm excited to hear it because i nothing it at the moment 
Okay, well, just uh, it's great to hear the the vote of confidence from you guys on that one. But uh, <laughs> uh, look, I'm not expecting that this thing is going to be the next Billy Jean or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. I just think it'd be cool to hear an alternate version of a song with Michael doing uh, background vocals or whatever he's doing on it. Um, it's the kind of thing where I think if there was a re- like a re-release of that album. I wouldn't propose that it comes out maybe on a Michael album or anything, but like if this if there was a re-release of the Blueprint, it's the kind of thing that'd make a cool bonus track that I think would get the attention of Michael fans as well. But anyway, we'll see. I, I would like to hear it. The other thing as well is that my lack of knowledge with regards to Jay Z's catalog is illustrated by the fact that when I first heard this story. And I saw that the song was Girls, Girls, Girls. I assumed they meant Motley Crue. And can you imagine Michael Jackson singing that? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Paris Jackson and Tito Jackson also have new music that's just recently come out. Paris's new song is called Band-Aid. Uh, it's come just after two other singles, Just You and Lighthouse, and has kind of like a 90s-inspired sort of grunge rock sort of sound. Uh, I don't mind it, but uh, I know that uh, my co-hosts here today have a little bit different opinions on that one. Uh, where we could probably agree, though, is the Tito song that's just come out. You know, I love Tito. I love his music. I love especially his blues guitar music. And he's he's really great in a lot of ways. But i got, <laughs> I got to say, not the biggest fan of his latest effort, uh, Make Up Your Mind, which features Chaos MC and Juendi Primiero. Sorry, Tito. This one was just a bit of a miss for me. I, I just I, I love it when you do funk music. Let's maybe get back to that when you get a chance. So... <laughs> <laughs> with Paris's song, I have heard it. I don't mind it. What I would say with Paris's music is that I feel it's the type of music that you need to be in a certain mood to listen to. But I think that perhaps that's even what she's going for. And everyone's got different tastes, right? And the grunge scene is not particularly my taste. But because it's Paris Jackson, I'll give it a listen. And I don't mind it. And she's doing her thing. And I think that that's wonderful. And she's putting what she wants out there and you know her own arts and I, I hope that she makes a success of it none of us want to see any jackson family member fail so i hope that she goes well with that tito's new song look i loved his last album mm. uh, i really did and i still listen to that uh, especially love one another again on going into tito's music with an open mind it's not usually what i'd sort of listen to my musical taste sort of revolves around michael jackson the darkness and acdc and paris and tito don't really fit into that mold but There's no harm in giving it a listen at least once. All right, let's jump into some bigger news. Production for the official biopic Michael is now underway and Jafar Jackson is set to play the role of his uncle. The director, Antoine Fuqua, is set to direct Michael, a Lionsgate drama that's uh, going to be telling the complex life story of the King of Pop. The script is written by John Logan. It's being produced by Graham King, who is responsible for the Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. GK Films will produce this alongside co-executives of Michael's estate, John Branca and John McClane. There is a great quote here I found as well from a recent article uh, where they're interviewing Antoine, and it says... The first films of my career were music videos, and I still feel that combining film and music are a deep part of who I am. For me, there is no artist with the power, the charisma, and the sheer musical genius of Michael Jackson. I was influenced to make music videos by watching his work. The first black artist to play in heavy rotation on MTV. His music and those images are part of my worldview, 
and the chance to tell his story on the screen alongside his music was irresistible. According to Lionsgate, the film will address all aspects of Michael Jackson's life, and that's what I kind of wanted to turn the discussion to now, if possible. I mean, I think we're all looking at this one with different opinions on how we're going to react to it. For me personally, I'm really excited that it's coming for the public if it's done well because it's an opportunity to shine a light on the truth in Michael Jackson's life rather than what the public often can perceive him as. I think it's a really good opportunity for some historical truth in there. I'm excited about it for that reason. For me personally, though, I'd rather watch a great Michael Jackson documentary or concert. I I still can't because I've been so immersed in the world of Michael Jackson for so many years and I've seen so much footage of him. I think it's going to be almost impossible for me to connect with an actor playing Michael because it was the same with other dramas that have come out about him, like that Man in the Mirror one or whatever it was years ago. Whenever I'm seeing somebody made up to look like Michael, it's it's a bit of a disconnect. But in saying that, the recent decision to um, cast his nephew as him, as soon as I saw that, I was actually very excited because if you've seen any videos of Jafar performing, there is a lot of similarities, not only vocally, but just in his physique. He is a Jackson. He's going to be able to, I think, really embody that sort of Jackson way of talking and that sort of humility and soft-spoken nature and that they all seem to have. And I think that'll be really good. I mean, the jury's out a little bit because we don't know how great an actor he is. And this is going to be looked at through a magnifying glass by the press. If it achieves anything like Bohemian Rhapsody did, it's going to catapult Jafar into the stratosphere (laughs) as an actor There's obviously a lot of money behind it. I'm curious, though, where it says they're trying to address all aspects of Jackson's life. Ah, I'm going to call it now. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to because this is being executive produced by John Branker and John McClain. Part of Michael's life is that for the last 10 years of his life, he was paranoid about these vultures coming in to take his money and John Branker was one of those people he was terrified of. So I can't see any any way unless they cut the the timescale off at a certain point in his life, like maybe like the Invincible Era or something. I can't see how they could truthfully tell the last 10 years of his life when people are making the movie that Michael was terrified of. I think you can split this story Let's split this story into to two parts, right? The the casting of Jafar Jackson and what the the content of the biopic is going to be. The, the casting of Jafar, I think, is a huge positive because as much as we have all said in the past that whenever you go and see an impersonator or someone is trying to be Michael Jackson, the more they try to make themselves into the persona of Michael Jackson, the more of a miss it is because they are not Michael Jackson. And I'm like you, I'd prefer to see a documentary with real footage of the real man. I think in our private conversations about the biopic, I've mentioned any of you that have seen the film Senna about the Formula One driver, Ayrton Senna, who all of the footage in that film is real footage and it's Ayrton Senna's voice doing the narration of it all. It's all real. None of it is actors. None of it is, uh, you know, voiceovers from people that weren't involved or anything like that. It's all real. 
And I think that the only way to make a viable film about the life of Michael Jackson is to use real footage, real audio. Having said that, are you going to be able to capture the entirety or, as they say, all aspects of Michael Jackson's life in an hour and a half or two-hour film? Ultimately, that's why Taj is making an 11-part documentary to try and cover all the topics. The second part of it, the the content of the biopic, the concern I have, and I'm actually I'm really looking forward to it, Antoine Fuqua, Graham King, John Logan, I'm hoping that they'll put together something really good. And, and Bohemian Rhapsody got great reviews and obviously brought people back to the music of Queen and Freddie Mercury and Brian May, John Deacon and Roger Taylor. My concern is that the movie Bohemian Rhapsody was very entertaining but not accurate. You know, there were things like Freddie Mercury divulging to his bandmates that he was HIV positive before they went out on stage at Live Aid, which is just factually incorrect. And the other thing is that the movie abruptly ends around the Live Aid concerts. There's nothing about the the last five years or so of Freddie Mercury's life and the, the live shows that they did at Wembley Stadium and Freddie's illness and decline and his death in 1991. If they take a similar philosophy into making a movie about Michael Jackson, where do they cut it off? Do they cover the trial? Do they cover Bashir being a prick? Do they cover Dr. Murray do they cover the death? Do they cover this is it? Do they cover, you know, the fallout with the estate, the fake songs that were produced and released, and then the subsequent legal fights? Do they cover Wade Robson and James Safechuck and their bullshit coming out after Michael's death? That's what I want to understand. Now, you could say, well, the answer's in the line there. The film will address all aspects of Jackson's life, and anything after he died is irrelevant. I just have reservations about exactly how much they're going to be able to fit in, especially given that Michael Jackson's professional life goes back to when he was five years old, all the way through to age 50. Well, yeah, I think that there are a number of problems here. The first is biopics are almost always terrible. If I try to think of a good musical biopic I can think of one, Ray, with Jamie Foxx playing Ray Charles. I really can't think of another one. I mean, I've not seen every movie ever made, but I've seen a lot of biopics and they're all bad. Firstly, as you say, Carter, they are always riddled with factual inaccuracies. You know, I'm a huge James Brown fan and I was so excited when the James Brown biopic was coming out and then I went to see it in the cinema and it just aggravated me from beginning to end because all I was seeing was all the stuff that was not correct. The fact that the Michael biopic is being made by the same people that made the Queen biopic does not fill me with confidence at all. Firstly, because I thought it was a terrible film. And secondly, because so much of it was not true. I mean, you scraped the surface there with stuff that was not true. There were just half the film was not true. They had a whole plot about Freddie quitting the band and then having to beg to be allowed back into the band. That was all just completely fictitious. They had him being diagnosed with HIV years before he actually was. There was just so much stuff in there that was just 
fabricated. And so as fans, I think that we are doomed, we are destined to find this film aggravating because it will almost inevitably be riddled from beginning to end with factual errors. So that's going to be aggravating. Another thing, as you say, Michael's life, you could take almost any couple of years of Michael's life and make a film about it. You could make a film about the trial. You could make a film about 93. You could make a film about this is it. Well, they did make a film about this. Is it. You could make films about so many aspects of Michael's life. The war with Sony, you could make a, a film about. So to try to squeeze his life into a film is going to be impossible. So what do you leave in and what do you cut out? Across the fan community, there will be aggravation about what has been included and what hasn't been included. No fans are going to agree on what should and should not be in there. The next problem that you've got is that it is impossible for anybody to play Michael. You know, I know that Taj was saying that he was in the hair and makeup test and that when he saw Jafar done up as Michael, he kind of, he was crying and it was so spooky because he looked and sounded so much like Michael. That's great. But can he dance like Michael? I mean, I'm skeptical because I've never in my entire life seen anyone who can. Never. I've never seen an impersonator who can dance like Michael. I've never seen another artist who's an artist in their own right who can dance like Michael. I just have never seen anyone ever. So how do you make a biopic of Michael Jackson, which is not underwhelming, because there is nobody who can actually recapture the magic of a Michael Jackson performance. There is nobody, there is nobody, no actor, nowhere, no one on the planet who you can hire who can do a better job of the Billie Jean routine than Michael Jackson could do. So whoever you cast, even if Jafar is really, really similar to Michael in the way that he looks and speaks, you're not going to be getting a Michael Jackson, Billie Jean performance out of Jafar. That's not a criticism of Jafar. It's just that Michael Jackson was supernaturally talented. So how do you make a film which actually demonstrates to the audience how brilliant Michael Jackson was? It can't be done. The only way you could do that is to show them the real Michael. So the film is destined to kind of make Michael seem underwhelming compared to who and what he actually was. On the plus side, Graham King has done at least one interview where he's spoken about the years that he has spent researching the allegations against Michael and how it is his belief after years of research that the allegations are meritless. So that is a positive. We know that the film is being made by a producer who believes in Michael Jackson and knows his onions. However... When Jamin said um, that this is uh, going to read, though, I took it down. Took down a shorthand quote here. Jamin described this film as quote a really good opportunity for some historical truth. We're not going to get that. We are absolutely, absolutely not going to get that. This film will be from beginning to end riddled with factual inaccuracies. It's an inevitability of any biopic that gets made in Hollywood. It will be full of bullshit from beginning to end. Bubbles will be in the studio when they're recording off the wall. Michael will be shooting the thriller video in his back garden at Neverland. 
it will be bullshit from beginning to end. So just brace yourself. This film will be full of bullshit. Even if it's made with the best of intentions by the best people in Hollywood, it will still be full of bullshit. I think what I meant by that was that there's a lot of people out there today who think that Michael Jackson could have been a pedophile. Lots of civilians on the street (laughs) who don't understand the ins and outs at the least think that Michael could have been a pedophile. The estate have really held back since leaving Neverland, as we've talked about before. There is no officially supported documentary that's come out debunking the allegations when fans have been crying out for that for years and years at this point. And we know Taj is working on that and that's great. But I guess what I mean is that general thought amongst people that Michael could have been a pedophile, this film is an opportunity to fix that. That's what I mean by an opportunity for historical truth. I hope they take that chance. I mean, yes, it's so important that they discuss, uh, show the performances, whether it be the Jackson 5 or you know Motown 25 or whatever it is. Yes, bring all that on. That's going to be great to celebrate that. But the key problem that Michael has is that lots of people think he could have been a pedophile. They need to fix that. They do, but the problem that you've got with that is that how do they get into the nuances of how Evan Chandler manipulated the situation in 93 onto how the Arvizos manipulated the situation in 2003 onto the trial and why he was found not guilty? How do you get all of that into an hour and a half or two-hour film plus all of the musical stuff from the late 60s, early 70s through to the end of his life. I don't know how, but I think they need to try because the jury's out for me massively on whether the general public are going to want to go see a, yay, let's celebrate Michael as an amazing performer movie unless that is addressed. It has to be addressed. It absolutely has to be addressed. But- that's. I suppose that's what all of our concern is, is how do you address it and get it into a film that's not going to be three, four, five hours long? Because who's going to sit in a cinema for that long? Um, I, I can't remember how long Bohemian Rhapsody was. I think that was close to two hours, wasn't it? But even then, because of the the way it ended, you know, out on stage at Live Aid and then end of the film and credits, I remember sitting in the cinema seat going, is that it? You know, there's going to be so much to Michael's story that's missed that people are possibly going to be sitting in their cinema seats going, "Uh, what about that? Yeah, I mean, it's to properly debunk the allegations, you would basically have to make the whole film about the allegations. That's the thing. I Mm. mean, this is what I'm saying when I say that you could take almost any element of Michael's life, almost any era, any couple of years and make a whole film about them. I mean, hell, you could take the, the, the trial in 2005 and turn that into a 10-episode miniseries like they did with the O.J. Simpson trial easily. Yeah. So it's very difficult to see how they could effectively address the allegations in a way that did debunk them without it dominating the entire film. It seems almost like an impossibility to me. And also the estate is never going to want to do that because the estate, I, I mean, that said, they did make the the Broadway musical, which is actually quite dark thematically, but that was uh, not in keeping with their usual approach. The Whitney Houston biopic came out over Christmas and did not do very well box office wise. 
that looked like a very happy, clappy, rags-to-riches type story. And that's kind of boring, you know, particularly when the audience knows that Whitney's life was a mess. When the audience knows that Whitney was abused as a child and they know that she was in a toxic relationship and that she was battling a crack addiction, and she died a very sad, tragic death when you put a trailer on the TV or in the cinema before another movie, and it's all this sort of like rags to riches, what a wonderful story of Whitney Houston. The the audience doesn't buy it. They just go, that looks like a bunch of bullshit. So it's going to be extremely difficult to find the right tone for this film. And particularly when the family are so involved in it. I mean, when you've got Michael's own nephew, playing him how do you get into the darkness how do you get into the drugs and the downfall how do you do that it's difficult so you need to find a way to promote this film to the audience where it doesn't seem like a whitewash but it also doesn't seem so depressing that they don't want to go and watch <laughs> so it's mm. uh, it's going to be a real difficult tightrope walk but for me, the big issue is the casting. I mean, I you know, Freddie Mercury was an amazing, amazing performer. He really was. However, you can take almost any actor and stick a moustache on them and get them to lip sync to Freddie Mercury, and you've got a Freddie Mercury performance, right? It's, Freddie Mercury's brilliance was basically about his voice. He didn't moonwalk. He didn't do five spins and fall down on his knees. He was not that physical of a performer. So it's same with Whitney. You can get anyone to lip sync to I Will Always Love You, and then you've got a Whitney Houston performance. But with Michael, so much of his performance ability was about his supernatural, completely unmatched, otherworldly dance talent, which nobody who has ever existed in the world since him has been able to replicate. I just don't see how you fix that. I don't see how you fix that problem for the big screen. I don't see how you have Jafar doing the Billie Jean performance like Michael. I don't understand how they're going to make that happen. And that's I just that's an elephant in the room. I just don't know how they're going to do it. Well, unless they spice it in with, with real footage and real audio, one of the wins of Bohemian Rhapsody was that they did use Freddie Mercury's own voice. And although the stage presence that Freddie Mercury has actually, actually was pretty well replicated, I have to say, but Freddie Mercury is not as difficult to impersonate as Michael Jackson. But like I say, one of the wins of Bohemian Rhapsody is that they used Freddie Mercury's own vocal performances when the music came on. And for me, one of the pitfalls of the Elton John biopic Rocket Man was that, and sorry, Taron Egerton, no disrespect or anything like that, but they used Taron Egerton's singing voice rather than, Elton John's and for me part of the magic of people's music is their own voice and their own vocal ability and I think by casting Jafar that's look he's an unknown quantity right I think it could be a really good positive because he is a Jackson family member he spent a lot of time with his uncle Michael he probably knows uncle Michael better than any actor that could go out there and, and do any kind of impersonation I hope that in the biopic, though, they use Michael's vocals, Michael's singing voice, Michael's music, even the live vocals 
if they happen to cast Jafar, you know, performing in the Bad Tour, for example, or the Victory Tour. I hope they use Michael's live vocals for this movie. I think there's a high chance of that because the estate are executive producers. They'll be authorizing the music, surely. Like it would be insane if the, if it came out and there, what, there wasn't his music in it and, and his voice. Jafar is a good singer. He's not Michael Jackson. So I think an easy way to solve that problem is just for lip syncing to happen. Mm. And I think that's fine because it makes it more authentic. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a pro-Michael Jackson product and we all want it to succeed. So I'm just hoping that the listeners don't take anything that we say as we're not rubbishing the project or anything like that. It's we really want this to succeed. We really want it to be this big worldwide hit which tells the world the truth about Michael Jackson and it, it you know, people can understand the guy. We just have concerns about how they're going to achieve that and I really hope they can achieve that because nothing will be better for Michael's legacy than to have the truth out there and understood by the millions that will go and watch it. In news connected to that story, Thriller Night 2023 won't be happening because later in the year the biopic will be filmed at Havenhurst. The Heal LA Foundation and Prince Jackson have already put a statement out saying that uh, we'll need to look forward to 2024 for the Thriller Night uh, event to return to Havenhurst. Well, that gives us an extra year to save up, doesn't it? Hmm. They have said that other events will be held at Havenhurst this year instead, but no detail has been given as to what those events will be. Presumably, they'll be earlier in the year. So I'm thinking that maybe that means something to do with June 25th or maybe the birthday, maybe August 29th or something. So we'll have to keep our eyes peeled as to what those events are likely to be that are being held instead. You know, they're the sort of things, though, that I think they could get right in the biopic. Like hearing that they're they're filming at Havenhurst is pretty good because... It means that they are honouring the family's history. They will probably have scenes, I think, where Jafar as Michael is constructing demos and things in the in the studio at Havenhurst because they've got that as a physical location they can film in. Uh, I think those kind of scenes could work really well. I know you've got a few concerns about the onstage performances and things, but if you've got Jafar in the studio with you know people like Matt Forger and John Barnes crafting this music... I think that could be really done really well. Another big news item that broke a couple of months ago and we weren't able to talk about it because we were on break is that Michael Jackson's estate is at this point aiming to sell a fairly large portion of his catalog, a move that Catherine Jackson has recently objected to. John Branker and John McLean, they're in talks at the moment to sell half of his music catalog for around 800 to 900 million dollars. It's being reported. And, and this deal includes Michael's music, publishing, the musical, and also the upcoming biopic that we've just been talking about, uh, and maybe even more things. They're aiming to sell it to Sony Music and Elridge Industries, which both partnered to purchase uh, other catalogs like Bruce Springsteen's catalog in 2021. It's really a difficult thing to actually discuss this because there's just so many mixed feelings around it. Like, even if it was a really wise business decision to do this, to make that amount of revenue. 
and I know it's very popular to do this at the moment. There's many estates and artists that are still alive that are doing this. For example, like I just mentioned, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Justin Bieber, they've all sold their catalogs between 200 and 500 million dollars. There's just something about it that doesn't feel quite right. I think it might be for me how much Michael was invested in his own catalog and then how worried he was about the Beatles catalog slipping away from his ownership in the last decade of his life. Even John Branker said in 2016 he wouldn't sell assets like this. But I guess the times change maybe. Maybe it's a really wise business decision for this moment. Maybe they're projecting out that the catalog would have less value in the future because of changes in the music industry. I don't really know. I guess I'm a little uneducated on the whole topic and unable to form a complete opinion on it. There is just something a little sad about it, though. I mean, this was something that Michael worked for his entire life to create, one of the most incredible music catalogs in the world. And it always just felt right that that was being passed on to his children, I guess. How do you guys feel about it all? I don't know how to feel about it, to be honest, because there's an element of, well, Michael's not here, so what does it matter? Mm -hmm. But then there's also an element of, well, this is his children's future and their children's future and their children's children's future, you know, and it, it has a knock-on effect. So, for example, the Elvis Presley catalogue, who owned that after he passed? It would have been Priscilla and Lisa Marie, right? There's so many elements of a person's estate. So, whoever owned the Elvis estate might not necessarily have owned the Elvis catalogue, so I just don't know who owned that mm-hmm. catalogue. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, from the point of view of, of Michael's own music – Perhaps the decision on that should go to his children and and who owns that and whether it gets sold or not. In terms of Michael's estate, John Branker and John McLean, it's out of Michael's hands. He's not here to do anything about it. And it's I don't know what private conversations Michael would have had with those guys and say, look, this is where I want it to go. Don't know if those guys are listening to those private conversations or whether they're making their own decisions. There is something a little bit final about it, though, isn't there? That sort of – yeah. You know, it's the one thing that Michael's legacy is still continuing, if you like. And if that gets sold off to someone who doesn't care, really, and is just in it to to make some money, then what effect is that going to have on Michael's music and artistry? It's it's just such a huge unknown, and I think that's what the trepidation is for a lot of the fan community. It's the finality of it. I think you just nailed that. I mean, it's we've seen these big assets that Michael worked for so long to acquire slip away from the beneficiaries like the Beatles catalog and then Neverland and now his own music. In times like this where it's sort of difficult to determine what the quote-unquote right way is, usually I like to defer to what the beneficiaries themselves are saying about it and I don't think Michael's children have spoken about this. But Catherine Jackson, interestingly, has filed some kind of motion in response to the sale Yeah. A lot of what we know about this situation, we know based on press reports because the actual legal paperwork has been filed under seal. So what we know is that the Michael Jackson estate filed a petition seeking approval of a business transaction. And what the press is reporting is that the transaction that they are seeking approval for is the sale of 50% 
of Michael's catalog for something approaching a billion dollars. And then we also know that Catherine Jackson, Michael's mother, has filed an objection to that proposed business deal. But that has been filed under seal. So Catherine's lawyers have said that the motion contains personal information, which the press is likely to exploit for profit. So they want the motion to be kept secret, essentially, to not be available to the public. So what we don't know is the grounds on which Mrs. Jackson is objecting. In terms of it being Michael's children's future, even if this goes ahead, they kind of get the best of both worlds because they get the huge upfront payment to the estate for the 50% that's sold, and then they continue to receive the annual dividends from the half that they still own. Those payments annually will still be more than any normal person would earn in a lifetime. So this is not a decision which is going to leave Michael's kids living in a dog kennel, right? This is a decision that's going to leave Michael's kids still fabulously wealthy forever, unless they really do something crazy with the money. I think the thing that really rankles, to be honest, is the press reports that they're planning to sell it to Sony. Because what we do know is that Michael absolutely pathologically despised Sony. We know that in the final years of his life, for example, he sent his bodyguards out to buy him a pair of headphones and they went out not knowing his history with Sony and came back with a pair of headphones that were Sony branded and Michael destroyed them. We also know that when Michael died, there were handwritten notes in his bedroom listing what he wanted to do with his career while the This Is It era was in progress. And he wrote a list of record labels that he would be willing to work with, and Sony was not on it. Michael hated Sony. And the idea of selling him in death to the record company that he absolutely hated with every fiber of his being in life is really sad and disgusting. I don't have any issues with the whole idea of, you know, this is Michael's kid's legacy. I mean, you know, they will be left fabulously wealthy by this deal. It's the allowing Michael to be owned in death by the company that he spent the last portion of his life trying to free himself from. That is ugly. Yeah, perhaps that's what it is that's making it a little bit uneasy to, to read about is the fact that it is Sony and not another company. Yeah, I take your point about his kid's future. That's that's a really good point. I mean, they're, yeah, they're not going to want for anything, are they? Whichever way it goes. No, I wouldn't expect so. I mean, unless they do go crackers, you know, and spend $100 million a year on God knows what. I can't even think what you would spend $100 million a year on. But in, it's theoretically possible that they could blow all the money. But I mean, it'd be a nice in reality, have, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, oh so uh, yeah, I mean, that is Sony, you know, it's allowing him to be owned 
by a company that he fought so hard to free himself from. It's like posthumous slavery. It's horrible. The idea of selling him to the one company that you know he would never, ever have wanted to be owned by. To sell him to that company feels almost vindictive. And I'm sure it's not vindictive. And they probably just think that Sony's going to pay them more than anyone else. But it just feels really ugly. It feels like a really ugly thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is sad. What we haven't seen is any evidence of the other beneficiaries, the kids, filing an opposition it's interesting to think what the dynamic is in the family at the moment with Catherine objecting and the kids not objecting what's going on there. What are Catherine's reasons? What are the kids reasons? I I doubt whether we'll ever hear the, the nitty gritty of it. And I'm sure that Catherine will not win because she doesn't have the firepower that the estate does in this world, but we'll just have to pay close attention and see where it goes. It, it that that's the other thing that disheartens me uh, along with the sale to Sony in particular is this continual slapping down of Mrs. Jackson whenever she raises concern you know she's quoted as saying something like when she was asked in an interview i don't know whether it was 60 minutes or something but she was asked about the estate and how it functions and she said well, we are the estate they're just the lawyers. We are the estate. I remember her saying something like that. Yet whenever she tries to, as a beneficiary, have a say in her son's legacy, she just gets slapped down. Yes. So the executor's job essentially is to run the estate in the way which best serves the interests of the beneficiaries. That's the job of the executors. Now, what are the best interests of the beneficiaries. Now that you could argue that that means quite simply making the most money for the beneficiaries, but you're in an interesting position in Michael's case where the beneficiaries are his family. And so they have bigger concerns than the money because Michael's estate is currently generating so much money every year that the family, the beneficiaries, Catherine and the kids will never be in need of money. They will always be rich. So if the estate is already making enough money to keep them rich every year, their best interests are not necessarily making even more money. If you're already making enough money, is the best interest actually the enhancement of Michael's image or the enhancement of Michael's legacy or so on? So it's almost like the executors seem to have this very narrow definition of what they think their job is. And they seem to view their job as just making more and more money every year. Whereas the family has different interests and there's a kind of a dispute over what are the best interests of the beneficiaries? What is the meaning of that? And that seems to be essentially what it all comes down to. Catherine has always argued for what is in the best interest of Michael's legacy. For example, opposing the release of the fake songs, fighting tooth and nail to stop those fake songs from getting released. She would have made more money 
if she had promoted those songs and said, everybody go out and buy these songs, their new Michael Jackson songs, gimme, 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 right? She would have made more money if she'd done that. She fought to damage the product from which she would have earned money because she said, this is not good for Michael's discography. This is not good for his legacy. These songs are fake. There you see that dispute. What constitutes the best interests of the beneficiaries? The estate thinks their best interest is to just make more and more and more and more money. The beneficiaries think that their best interests is to enhance the brand and the image and the legacy. It will come down to an argument, I guess, about why this is or is not good for the bottom line and or for Michael's legacy. I struggle to see how it would damage his legacy, uh, other than if you put the ownership of the songs into the wrong hands, could you end up with the songs being used for terrible things? You know, could you end up with Michael Jackson music being used to promote planet-killing petrol firms, for example, when Michael fought his whole life to preserve and protect the environment? Could you end up with ExxonMobil using Earth Song in an oil commercial, for example. So there's so many issues to consider here. I just will be fascinated to see how it plays out. All right, on to our last discussion topic of this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about Taj Jackson, his upcoming docuseries, what's been going on in the Michael community around Taj, which has just been mayhem for the past few weeks. Let's just take a second to uh, congratulate Taj and his wonderful wife, Tiana, on expecting their third child, which was super exciting news to see a couple of weeks ago. Very, very cool. And congratulations to both of them and their entire family. Absolutely. So we're going to dig now into the craziness that has been the last few weeks around rewriting history. And of course, Charlie Thompson, you're on the team that is putting that together. I know there's things that you can say, there's things you can't say because you're on the team. But more what I wanted to discuss today, rather than the, you know, the actual docuseries itself, is what's been going on in the Michael community over the past few weeks around criticism of Taj's efforts. And uh, I think I might just sit back on this one for a little bit because I, I think I'd really like it if you, Charlie, could sort of tell the story of what's gone on just over the past few weeks, sort of from start to finish, who the people that are involved are. What is going on? How is the team even perceiving and responding to this? It, it must be a challenging time, I could imagine, for yourself and others on the Rewriting History team. Well, I should preface my response by saying that everybody who has contributed in any way to the documentary so far has signed a non-disclosure agreement. I am very inhibited as to what I can say as far as anything to do with the team, to do with the project, to do with the work that's going on, etc. I would also preface what I'm about to say by saying that I may not necessarily have a complete understanding of what happened because I don't spend my whole life on Twitter. As I understand it, what happened was this. TJ, who is Taj's brother, went on Twitter a while ago and posted some comments about not feeling that Sam Smith's latest, I think, a performance rather than a music video was very tasteful. 
So it was a video of a, a quite a sexualized video in which Sam Smith was, I believe, bare chested and wearing nipple tassels or something like that. And TJ posted some tweets saying, I don't think that this is appropriate. I think that the music industry is promoting inappropriate sexual ideas to young consumers and so on and so forth. This turned into quite a protracted issue where TJ then was asked questions about other performers and tweeted about disliking other sexualized performances. And then some fan somewhere posted a video of Janet performing the routine that she used to do in her shows where she would basically like strap a male audience member to some device and then crawl all over them simulating sex with them essentially during some song or something so somebody posted that and said oh yeah you don't like sexualized performances and yet this is what your auntie used to do when she was on tour and tj responded by saying i never used to like it when janet did that in her concerts i thought she was much better when she was being more chaste and tasteful, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I don't have the tweets in front of me. And he may even have deleted them. I can't remember. So that actually resulted in a huge blow up on Twitter of people essentially accusing TJ of being a misogynist. Also some rather bizarre arguments being made that he was a racist. It ended up being covered by the press, by a sort of quasi-blog type small media outlets. And in response to that, Taj went online, having not been on Twitter for a while. He sort of goes through periods of not being on Twitter and defended his brother and said something like, I'm so tired of Twitter being such a toxic swamp where everything somebody says is seized on and twisted and manipulated into some controversy. And I'm sick of people who are so willing to think the worst of everyone all the time and stir up trouble. That was the gist. That then resulted in a section of the online community accusing Taj of being a misogynist and also a racist somehow. And then just erupted into this all-out warfare on Taj, just this absolute pile-on, where he was just being completely abused in the most horrible, foul-mouthed, personally vindictive way. All sorts of insults being thrown at him. And, of course, that eventually tipped over into people criticizing the documentary, the fact that he had fundraised money for the documentary and that the documentary hasn't been released yet and people calling him a crook and a thief and a scammer and saying that he's tricked fans into handing over money for a project that doesn't exist or something. And then some quite prominent members of the fan community joined in that the most notable was the MJ Vibe team. So a guy called Ilya, who is a member of the, the that podcast, which I think is called the, 
the MJ debate or the big MJ debate. So there's a guy on that show called Ilya. That podcast show is sort of inextricably intertwined with MJ Vibe and King Vention. So MJ Vibe is run by Pez and his partner Seb. Pez Jax, who we all know on the, the MJ cast, he's been on the show before. They also run Kingvention, and they're also very involved in the big MJ debate, which he regularly appears on with his friend Ilya. Ilya was one of those fans who joined in the online pylon against Taj. He retweeted somebody else making a comment that Taj had stolen money. Then somebody who knows Taj responded to Ilya saying, essentially, why have you retweeted this? It's not very nice. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. To which Ilya replied with something else, which I believe he's now, I believe he's now deleted all these tweets. But he replied with some comment that was uncharitable towards Taj, which somehow came to Taj's attention and Taj replied to him. Ilya then got involved in a back and forth with Taj, in which he became increasingly unpleasant. I think Taj blocked him, which I would have done as well if somebody was being unpleasant to me in tweet after tweet. And then Ilya ultimately posted on Twitter that Taj was a jobless rat. Meanwhile, MJ Vibe which we all, you know, everyone at the MJ cast is aware of MJ Vibe and accesses MJ Vibe for the latest news and have never had a problem with MJ Vibe before. And as I say, Pez has been on the show before. But MJ Vibe wrote an article then saying that Taj was blocking fans who asked him questions about his documentary. That appeared to be a reference to Taj blocking Ilya. But anyone that was following what was happening on Twitter would have seen that Ilya was not asking Taj questions about his documentary. He was just sending him abusive comments. And also, he was not an investor in Taj's documentary anyway. That article went up and was shared widely, basically asserting that Taj was blocking people who asked him questions about his documentary, which was really not true. He was only blocking people that were sending him abusive comments, which is not the same thing. That just fanned the flames and sparked a whole new pile on. And other prominent fans started getting involved. It's just been very disheartening to see, actually. It was almost like um, people got swept up in this crazy mob mentality and just went after Taj in the most unpleasant, ugly way. And it really was all over nothing. All he'd done was logged onto Twitter and defended his brother against another pile on. So... The whole thing did not cover the fan community in glory at all, made the fan community look juvenile, ugly, bullying, vindictive, spiteful, nasty. The whole thing has just been a a sad chapter. Gross. Yeah, it's been gross. And by the way, none of this is to say that if you do have genuine questions about Taj's documentary, if you donated to the GoFundMe in 2019, you're perfectly entitled to politely inquire as to what is going on with the project. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, and Taj is not blocking people who ask him questions. That is not true. 
and in fact, Taj regularly receives inquiries from people who've donated to the project, asking for updates and things like that. And he does go out of his way to respond to people as far as he is able to. I mean, he is a busy person. He is very open about what's going on with the documentary and about the setbacks that he's experienced, which, of course, included a global pandemic, which did shut down far, far, far greater productions than his own. I mean, for example, there was the A&E four-hour documentary about Michael's trial, which was literally nearing completion when the pandemic hit. We went into lockdown in March. That was due out in June. It had been in production for a long time. It was completely killed by COVID. It never came out. So this pandemic killed monster productions with giant budgets. So the idea that Taj is currently quite small indie project um, should have somehow been completed in the middle of a global pandemic would be ridiculous. It's okay to have questions. It would be better if they were sensible questions, but abuse is not okay. So that's the point I'm making. I'm not suggesting in any way that anybody who does have questions about the documentary is wrong to ask them, wrong to inquire, wrong to try to hold Taj to account and say what's going on with the documentary and that you raised all this money. And Taj is perfectly happy to uh, answer those questions. He went on the Black Jackson estate quite recently and answered similar questions. But that that is not what this was. That was the unfortunate thing about the MJ Vibe article. It suggested that Taj was blocking people for asking legitimate questions about his documentary. In fact, he was blocking people who were sending him quite ugly vitriolic abuse. It's a shame that that was not made clearer in the MJ Vibe article. Also, I think it's important to remember that when, when people give to a crowdfunding campaign, whether it's Kickstarter or GoFundMe, any reasonable person understands that when you give money to this, it's not like an investment in which you are guaranteed some kind of return legally. People give money in the full knowledge that what they're donating to may never eventuate. So I'm I'm very hopeful that this document series is still going to come out at some point. It may take longer than we expected or much longer, but there's a team actively working on it. I know people on that team and all signs point to it still being in the works and coming out. It may just take a really long time. Uh, anybody who gives $10 to a crowdfunding campaign and then demands it comes out in the time frame they want is just ridiculous. I don't understand what makes people think that they have the right to send abuse like that. There's a difference between questioning something or criticizing something and just out and out abuse. And I'm sorry to um, single it out, but it's just that we've mentioned it here. But uh, is Ilya? Oh, I don't know who that is, so I apologize in advance for not being aware of the history of who Ilya is and what he does. But to call someone a jobless rat is it's not nice, is it? I mean, I'm going to be gentle with how I phrase that. It's really not right. It's not on. If he has deleted those tweets, and I think that's a very good move and necessarily should be applauded, but perhaps it shows that he's had the clarity to go back on his comments, think about it, and remove them. The criticism that Taj has received about his documentary, you know, we raised it in the Christmas episode that some people had called him a scammer and a, a fraud, and we put that question to him. And I thought that he answered it in, in a very nice way and say, look, okay, people are, who've contributed to this documentary, they've got a right to ask questions and if they want to criticise, that's absolutely their right, but hopefully they'll get behind it and promote it as loudly 
as they criticized it when it does come out. I thought he answered that question really well. You mentioned the Black Jackson estate. He did appear on the Black Jackson estate and they got to clarify their position with him. He clarified his position with them and all's right with the world there with Taj and the Black Jackson estate. He can block whoever he wants to on Twitter. We've already said many times what a toxic place Twitter is. Twitter literally gives you the ability to tell someone to kill themselves while you're sitting on the toilet. And that is just not a productive environment to be in. Going back to the original point of this topic about TJ and his comments, I remember when I saw that clip that someone put to him of his auntie Janet, and there's an element of it which is entertainment. And I remember saying to you guys in the group chat that I would have been both completely excited and absolutely shitting myself if that was me on stage with <laughs> Janet Jackson because I've said how, how much of a, you know, I think she's one of the most beautiful women there's ever been in the entertainment industry. Or TJ was saying was that he didn't particularly like that part of Janet's show and that he was trying to promote women. He was trying to say or trying to, I don't really know how to word this without sounding like an ass, but he was trying to make the point that women are so amazing and that they can express themselves in such amazing ways that they are the most beautiful creatures on the planet and that they can elevate themselves to something bigger. He just said he didn't like the over-sexualized part of the entertainment industry. I don't think that there's anything misogynistic in what he's saying. I remember back in the 80s that Reby Jackson gave an interview saying that she didn't like it when Michael grabbed his crotch. It doesn't mean that they don't support their family member or want them to succeed. There's just a particular element that is not to their taste. I don't see anything wrong with that, personally. I wouldn't mind weighing in on it a little bit. With the TJ comment in particular, I understand what he's trying to say, and I don't for a second think he's intentionally a misogynistic person. Not at all. I think the reason it's problematic is that Janet Jackson should be able to do what she wants. She's a woman with agency. If she wants to explore her sexuality in an artistic sense, then that's up to her. And for somebody, particularly a male, to be on social media saying, I don't like it when somebody does that. Well, yep, that's an opinion and that's your thing and that's a matter of your taste and that's fine. But we also need to acknowledge that Janet Jackson is a strong female entertainer with agency who gets to do what she wants. Yeah, she's her own woman, yeah. I don't necessarily think they're good performances. Like I don't watch it and think, wow, I can't wait to watch the All For You tour because I get to see the – you know, the lap dance routine thing. It's more of an issue of if she wants to do that, she totally can. It's up to her. Who cares? And there's a long history in world history, (laughs) not just entertainment, but of men telling women what they should and shouldn't do. And I think Janet's completely within her right to do whatever she wants to do. If you look back at Lots and lots of (laughs) male artists. There's lots of highly sexualized productions. There's a famous album that Marvin Gaye put out in the 1970s called I Want You in 1976. And (laughs) throughout that album, there is the sound of a woman basically orgasming, (laughs) like having sex. And 
you know, like Michael used to say, nobody says anything about that. <laughs> but as soon as Janet does something, it's an issue. So I, yeah, I, I'm sorry, but I can't get behind TJ's comments personally. I understand if others do, but I can't. See, if he was only saying it about female artists, then I could understand the argument about it being misogynistic. What we don't know is whether TJ has a problem with male artists exploring their sexuality as well. Personally, what I would say is that I personally find it tasteless, generally speaking, when any artist exploits their sexuality as a marketing tool. Personally, I don't... So I've been to see Usher before in concert. I would hasten to add that I didn't buy the tickets and it wasn't my idea. I went with somebody else who was (laughs) desperate to go and, and had a spare ticket. The entire audience was comprised of hormonal females of a certain age and the biggest cheers of the night happened whenever he took his top off. And I found the whole thing quite pathetic, the whole show, because it was not about music. In fact, it was lip syncing some of the show. It was all about people being excited about somebody taking their shirt off. So essentially, he More is like a, a strip Chippendale. show than a concert type thing. Yeah, he's like a Chippendale with some songs. I didn't enjoy that. And it's, that doesn't make me a misogynist because Usher is a male. Right. So I would find it tasteless, whoever it was, whether it's Madonna or whether it's Usher. I just don't find that entertaining and I don't really think it's tasteful. I think that if you're a musician, you should succeed or fail on the quality of your musicianship. Prince would be an interesting case study because, of course, a lot of his music was extremely sexualized. However, he was an amazing musician. So He wasn't using his sexuality as the primary marketing tool. He wasn't selling sex. He was selling music, which was sexual, which is a difference, I think. I think it is a leap, a stretch to accuse TJ of misogyny for not liking sexualized performances. Although you could make an argument. I mean, there is that photo shoot that 3T did with Michael where they're basically dressed in dishcloths you know <laughs> so arguably 3t used sexuality to market themselves when they were younger albeit they were young and that might not have necessarily been their idea it could have been a publicist or somebody who hatched that plan um but yeah it's i think it's a stretch i really do think it's a stretch to accuse him of misogyny i think it also needs to be said too though that TJ himself has some pretty sexual content. Like if you look at his music video for the recent track Insomnia, which we talked about when it came out on the MJ cast, the short film for that is highly sexual and it's got a woman, you know, gyrating all over him and, you know, she's just in her underwear and, (laughs) and, and then, you know, as well, friend of the show, Courtney Striebling from the Janet Jackson podcast sent me this message a little while ago and, and showed me another tweet that TJ had made, which I found really, really interesting. And it says, we don't appreciate Smokey Robinson enough. The man is a living legend and someone I will always cherish and learn from. The clarity and honesty he speaks with is something I will always admire. And when you go and look at Smokey Robinson's new album, which is called Gasms, 
you know, the track list on that, I mean, let me just say a few titles from the track list there. You got Gasms, I Want to Know Your Body, Roll Around, You Fill Me Up, and I Fit In There. So <laughs> I'm sorry, but I mean, if, if he's going to call out, you know, and say he didn't really like how Janet, uh, what she was doing in that um, lap dance routine, then then he's got to look at what he's also saying about Smokey Robinson and what he's also putting out in his own music videos. Yeah, I, I, I love TJ. I really do. But I understand why members of the community are upset about that. It could also be that she's just his auntie and that's just weird seeing your auntie doing that on stage. Like, you know, I saw somebody reply to his tweet and just say, could it be just because it's your auntie? So (laughs) I struggle with the notion that he was being misogynistic because when you look at his tweets, they were so pro-women and and people have sort of taken it to have a different meaning. And I don't think there was any intent of misogyny in what he was saying. He was trying to promote women. And I also realized that this this is probably something that as a white 30-something male, I shouldn't be talking about his comments about a black woman. You know, I'm the complete opposite demographic. Either way, it doesn't give you the right to then go in and abuse him or his brother that comes in to stand up for him. Um, When ultimately, I think the comments that TJ was saying and Taj were positive. They were trying to promote the best in people and for them to then have comments such as, oh, you're a jobless rat, it's just not on. It's yeah. it's bullying. There's and, a polite way to disagree with people. Yeah, and I'm quite frankly, I, with Twitter, I don't engage with that sort of crap anymore and if it's got to the stage where someone's going to start calling me names, I'll block them as well. And it's absolutely Taj's and TJ's and anyone on Twitter if you're on Twitter, it's absolutely your right to decide who you do and don't block. And if you don't agree with a decision that someone has made to block someone else, it's nothing to do with you. It's it's honestly, if I decide to block you because you've said something I don't like, that is entirely my decision. If you don't like it, talk to me, apologize, and I'll unblock you. Or, or you know, if you don't feel that you should have been blocked by me, well, stiff shit. It's not your decision. <laughs> And this is why I don't go on Twitter anymore. <laughs> me well, neither. Funnily enough, Damien messaged me a couple of weeks ago, Damien Shields, and said, uh, John Branker has just blocked somebody that I know on TikTok. I said, oh, right, why? What did he do? And then Damien told me what the guy had done. And I said, yeah, well, I would have blocked him as well. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it wasn't like he sent him a, a polite message saying, um, hello, Mr. Branker can you give me some information on X, Y, Z? He'd sent him some message basically accusing him of being a corpse raper or something. So, of course, he's going to get blocked. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it's, there's, a, there's ways of engaging with people. The thing that really made me laugh about the whole Ilya thing was one of the comments that he made to Taj. He tweeted something like, I've never cared about you or any of your family um, the only Jacksons I've ever cared about are Michael and Janet and the rest of you, I don't care. Something like that. And then he sent some message to Taj later saying, you expect everybody to fawn over you because you went on TV and defended your uncle. Well, that's the bare minimum you should do. Why should you expect any praise for defending your own uncle? I thought, well, hang on a minute. How many interviews did Janet do? On the one hand, you're saying... The only Jackson you care about is Janet, who's alive now. 
On the other hand, you're saying that the bare minimum that a Jackson should be doing is defending Michael during Leaving Neverland. Well, Janet didn't do that. Janet wasn't giving interviews defending Michael. So it doesn't mean she doesn't support any... him, though. Let's clarify that. No, 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 it doesn't. But he was saying it's the bare minimum. He was saying, oh, mm. yeah, you want praise because you were defending your uncle publicly. It was like, well, hang on. This is a completely illogical position you're taking now. There's no logical consistency to what you're saying. The whole thing was just a mess. I don't really like honing in on Ilya, to be honest, because he was one of many. No. The problem is that Ilya was probably the most prominent it was him and MJ Vibe. They were the prominent fans who basically fanned the flames of what was going on just by virtue of being so well-known in the community behind yeah. Kingvention and the podcast and everything. His comments were the most visible, you know, because he was the most prominent fan, really, that was joining in with it. There were a couple of others. But, um, yeah, that did strike me as something of a logical problem so it should come as no surprise to him that he got blocked i would have blocked him if, if i was Taj, i would have blocked him and the suggestion that he was blocked for asking questions about the documentary is absolutely fallacious that's not true at all now i realize that there's a, a slight hypocrisy in what i said a minute ago about you know being blocked on twitter and okay it's not your decision like for example i've been blocked on twitter by diane diamond and the reason that she blocked me is because I was giving reasoned responses and asking reasoned questions to some of the rubbish that she was putting on Twitter and Facebook and and responding to her with facts. And she basically was telling me that I was lying and then she decided to block me. And I went, okay, it's her decision. If she wants to block me because I'm saying something that's not in line with what she wants, as annoying as it might be, it's still her decision. It's not like I can appeal to the Twitter gods and say, hey, she blocked me and she shouldn't have. Well, you know. It is what it is. I was actually blocked by Diane Diamond without having ever engaged with her in any way. It was right <laughs> after I joined Twitter. I'd just written the Huffington Post piece back in 2010. And somebody mm. said something about Diane Diamond tweeting something. And I went to look at her Twitter page and I was already blocked. I've been on Twitter almost no time at all. <laughs> wow. I never engaged with her whatsoever. I was already blocked. Uh, that was quite shocking. I got blocked by Spike Lee because I happened to be tagged in a tweet that my friend and co-founder of the MJ cast, TJ, sent to him saying that Michael on the Bad 25 poster looked like he was wearing pajamas and he just blocked both of us even though I didn't say anything. <laughs> oh, my God. Which is frustrating, but, I mean, it ultimately is his decision. Whether you know, if, if it's wrong and you can get hold of him and sort of clarify and he'll go, oh, sorry, my mistake and unblock you, no worries. But if he <laughs> wants to keep you blocked, then that's entirely his decision. <laughs> I was blocked by Brian Vibbets because he oh. once tweeted, um, he, he put on Twitter, uh, I never went to the Madison Square Garden concerts in 2001. Can anybody tell me whether they were good or not? And so I answered him quite honestly and then just discovered that I was blocked. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. On that note, I think we might bring this episode to a close. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for adding some clarity around all these crazy things that have happened over the past couple of months. We will be back with another episode shortly. I'm really looking forward to that. Let's talk about our socials. If listeners want to find the MJCast online, they certainly can. We're at the MJCast.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. 
at the MJ Cast. We're also over on YouTube at the MJ Cast. You can listen to us on YouTube as a podcast if you'd like, but we do prefer it if people subscribe to us as a podcast on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure you hit us up with a, a rating and a review and all that kind of stuff. Uh, may, maybe send us an email to tell us what you're thinking of our latest episodes. We love to hear from our listeners. Uh, we are also on a, another social network platform that we've just started up uh, with Twitter kind of imploding lately with all of Elon Musk's crazy behaviors and people leaving Twitter for different reasons. Uh, we have set up a Mastodon account. It sort of seems as though most people who are choosing to leave Twitter Mastodon seems to be the destination of choice at the minute. So you can find us at, at the MJCast at mastodon.social if you'd like to follow us there. Very, very similar to Twitter. I don't use Twitter or Instagram anymore, but I do use Mastodon um, and I'm putting out a lot of thoughts and opinions around Michael on there. Uh, so if you'd like to follow us there and engage, that'd be really great. It does feel a lot better than Twitter. There's well, so far, at least who knows it might change, but there doesn't seem to be that same kind of snarky bullcrap going on, uh, which is a nice breath of fresh air at the minute. All right, gentlemen, where can people find you on social media as well? Well, they can find me on Twitter at, at CE Thompson or on Instagram at, at CE Thompson journo J O U. RNO. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter as at Charlie W. Carter. I'm also on Mastodon at Charlie W. Carter at theblower.au. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. Um, <laughs> Instagram at Alpha Charlie Photos is my uh, public page, and at Charlie W. Carter is my private one. Great. And in terms of my personal account, the only social media network that I'm active on these days is Mastodon. And I can be found at, at jaymanbull at mastodon.social. We'll link all of those things in the show notes. And I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode. We can't wait to be back uh, in just a little while with another episode of the MJ Cast. We're really enjoying season nine. Can't wait for another great year. Keep Michaeling. <laughs>